0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Close Readings. I'm your host, Kamran Javadizadeh, and I am so excited today to be talking to a scholar that I've admired for a long time now and who's been really important to my work. Our our guest um, on this episode is Virginia Jackson. And um, uh, Virginia Jackson, or Jenny, as she's known to friends, um, has chosen um, an amazing and fascinating poem for us to discuss today, a poem by Phyllis Wheatley called... Um, To the Right Honorable William Earl of Dartmouth, though I think that's a slightly shorter version of the title than than its fullest version, which which is something that Jenny will um, explain to us uh, soon enough. But before we get to the poem, let me tell you a little bit more about our guest today. Uh, Virginia Jackson is the UCI Endowed Chair in Rhetoric at University of California, Irvine, and she's the author of two books. Um, The the first um, Her first monograph um, is called Dickinson's Misery, A Theory of Lyric Reading, and it was published by Princeton University Press in 2005. It's just a hugely important book um, for um, scholars of Dickinson, for readers of Dickinson more generally, for people interested in 19th century um, uh, poetry, uh, but really for poetry studies. As as um, broadly conceived as you like, um, as partial testament to its importance, it was a, it's a book that won two prizes: the 2005 Prize for a First Book from the MLA, and the 2006 Christian Gauss Award from Phi Beta Kappa Book Awards. Um, I I think I'll have more to say about Dickinson's misery in a moment. Uh, But um, Jenny, um, much more recently, um, in fact, just this year, just I think a month or so ago, published um, her second monograph, a book called Before Modernism, Inventing American Lyric, um, also published by Princeton, and as I say, um, this year in 2023. Um, that book is already um, creating lots of buzz in the poetry studies world. Um, it, it, is, um, it is sure to be an important one for, for lots of readers. And um, I think probably that our topic today um, will invite lots of discussion about that book as well. And I hope, Jenny, you'll, you'll feel like you want to um, share uh, with our listeners some of what you write about in that book. Um, but I should also mention that Jenny is the, the um, a co-editor of a th- of a third book, though it appeared between the first and the second that I've just named, a book called The Lyric Theory Reader, uh, which is um, uh, more than one thing. That book it's um, it's an anthology of um, some of the most important essays in um, a field that we might call lyric theory or poetry studies. Um, Essays um, mostly uh, from the latter half of the 20th century and the um, the first decades of the 21st century, though not exclusively. Um, when I say the book is more than one thing, it's not just an anthology. Um, Jenny Jackson and her co-editor Yopi Prins, um have written um, really invaluable introductions to each section of that book, which I think taken together um, tell the story, um, or tell one story of what, uh, lyric theory has been over the last, um, century or so. Um, that book was published by Johns Hopkins university press in 2014. It's a book that I regularly assign to, uh, graduate seminars, undergraduate seminars in, um, in poetry. And it's just a, it's an invaluable resource. Um, So beyond those two monographs and that edited um, um, volume, Jenny has published articles in all of the um, places where a scholar of her um, significance would be expected to publish, places like Critical Inquiry, MLQ, New Literary History, Studies in Romanticism, PMLA. but um, but I want to say, just uh, before we get going today and talk about Wheatley, um, I want to say a word about how I first became aware of Jenny's work and, and give you some impression of why it's been so important to me. Um, Dickinson's Misery has one of the great openings of um, academic monographs that, that I know. It sort of begins with the question... I'm paraphrasing here, this isn't a direct quote. It begins by wondering what it was that Emily Dickinson left behind. sort of invites you as a reader to put yourself in the position of someone who opens a box that has her papers in it and then has to make sense of them. And and then it thinks beautifully about... uh, why in some ways that's such a difficult question to answer and how one's own historical situatedness uh, determines the kind of answer that one can give to that question. Um, The book is, as I say, about Dickinson, but it's also about how the evolving reading practices and theoretical positions of the 20th century made Dickinson representative of something with an ancient name, but a new kind of meaning. And um, an ever evolving kind of meaning that that thing with the ancient name is lyric um and how the salience of that generic category the increasing salience of that generic category in, in a process that that um Jenny calls lyricization uh foreshortened the way we read um and the way we write poetry now. So what I love about this work is how it attends to the interrelation of theory and practice um, in poetry um, as they exist and evolve in history. Uh, so you know, I work on a um, primarily my scholarship on a on a different field. You know, I'm mostly a 20th century and 21st century um, scholar, but um, I think in almost everything I've written since I've read. Um, Dickinson's misery. I've been um, either citing it or thinking about it and responding to it in some way. And so I'm I'm really excited um, that the new book is out, and I'm so thrilled to have Virginia Jackson on the podcast today. Jenny, how are you doing?
1: Thank you. Well, I'm doing really well after that introduction. Come thank you. You're um, I feel. Um, it's the, thank you. That was, that's, that, that it's so uh, I have also um, really benefited from your work. So the conversation is important to me and we've been talking for a while um, mm-hmm. actually. So, so uh, I think that I, it's helpful um, for me to hear you <laughs> introduce me, you know, because I don't <laughs> not necessarily think of myself in the, the way that you describe. and. Uh, you know how it is. When you've written a new book, you don't know yet exactly what it is you've written, and I can right. see its relation to what you described. But the poem I want to talk about today is uh, has shares a lot with the concerns of my previous work that is with what lyric theory is and isn't in various right. periods, what gets called lyric, what's not called lyric. And also with that sense of discovery. Mm.
0: Yeah. Oh, good. Okay. Yes. And I do know, I mean, sometimes, um, uh, you know, I, it's not I, not as though I've been introduced um, all that many times in settings like these, but it's happened, you know, and and one does always learn a little bit about um, what one has done uh, on the basis of how other people um uh, describe it so I'm well I'm happy to provide that service to you but now let me ask you to provide a service to our listeners which is we're here today to talk about a poem um, written by Phyllis Wheatley written in the 18th century um, and um, and I don't want to assume that our readers know really anything about who Wheatley was um, I'm sure one could um, Go on filling the hour and, and of course more with um, just talk about biography and literary history and that kind of thing. So I don't want for us to um, get get stuck in that terrain, but I, I do think probably some context will be useful. So Jenny, what should people know about who Wheatley was, um, not assuming they know anything coming into this conversation?
1: Yeah, um, it's a really important question. As you say, Cameron, we could spend all day talking about it and probably should. Um, in some ways, we know very little uh, about the person who who came to be known as Phyllis Wheatley in the 18th century was. And in some ways, we've learned a lot. So um, Phyllis uh, Wheatley um, was kidnapped from the western coast of Africa, probably the Senegambian region. Um, in, uh, in 1761, she arrived in Boston in 1761, um, when she was roughly seven years old. And we, uh, we think she was roughly seven years old because she was described as shedding teeth. So however old you are when you're losing teeth, she could have been six, she could have been seven, she could have been eight. She was a, she was a small child. Uh, she, uh, the, the, the the ship that brought her to the dock in Boston was called the Phyllis. Mm -hmm. And the people who thought they were purchasing her on that dock in 1761 um, were named Wheatley. So she became Phyllis Wheatley. She was named Mm -hmm. for the ship and she took the name as was conventional of her enslavers Recently, um, Honoré Jeffers, among others, have urged us to think of her as Phyllis Wheatley Peters, because later in her life, Phyllis Wheatley married a man named John Peters after her manumission, Um, and and so that's the last name of the Black man she chose to marry, rather than the, the name of her white enslavers. She became famous as Phyllis Wheatley, and I'm interested in her as a literary historical subject. So I usually refer to her as Phyllis Wheatley, with the admission of how obscene that name is. Sure. And um, and but as a bi, when talking about her biography, Uh um, I think it's it makes sense to refer to her as Phyllis Wheatley Peters.
0: Okay, so so you um thanks, and that makes sense, and thank you for giving that additional context about her name. Um, and I've also seen that. Phyllis itself gets spelled differently sometimes, right? Sometimes with a Y, sometimes with an I. Um,
1: Yeah, it's incorrect with a Y, but um, there were 19th century Black reading clubs that started uh, spelling it with a Y. So it's also historically... There's also an historical transmission related to the Phyllis Wheatley clubs. Yeah,
0: Um, Maybe I could ask you just to say a few more words about what you referred to really briefly in passing as her fame. Um, So this... Um, can you say something about how that fame came to exist and um, we're not, are are we Jenny talking about posthumous fame only? No, 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 not at all. Not at all.
1: In fact, in fact, her posthumous fame has wavered up and down, but her fame uh, in her lifetime was tremendous. And so, um, when she was a teenager, she began publishing poems, uh, first in local papers, um, but then uh, in also British papers, since, of course, Boston was a British colony. Right. And um, by the time she published the poem that we're going to talk about today, uh, the poem to Dartmouth, she was transatlantically famous. That is, she was a colonial mm. subject in Boston who was transatlantically famous in the Anglosphere. Right. And she was a, she was called the Sable Prodigy. Um, every mm-hmm. poem she published in the papers was prefaced with a little biography about how right. she was the property of Mr. John Wheatley. And right. she was an extraordinary property, basically. The Wheatleys were proud of the value of this genius and it's part of the creepy part about her fame that's also a
0: strange tr- kind of pride right? Yeah, right yeah
1: no it's and but also she is clearly strategizing as mm. a 15 16 17 year old um enslaved teenager her publication and the way in which it's going to build on that fame
2: right she
1: writes an elegy for the um for the charismatic uh, minister, uh, evangelical preacher George Whitfield, that really makes her transatlantically famous because mm-hmm. Whitfield is the minister and ambassador of Selena, Countess of Huntington, who is an abolitionist um, uh, patron. And in fact, she's the one who finally gets Wheatley's book published in London in 1773. Right. So yeah, she's famous in her lifetime and in fact um, she clearly uh, wrote a second book of poems, but it was it's been lost because by that time she was freed and she was impoverished uh-huh. and um, her 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 manuscript was was lost and she kind of, fell out of the conversation, obviously, by 1776. We know what happens in Boston. And so um, it wasn't so important um, until she's revived by abolitionist printing in the early 19th century. And then she circulates, but she comes back into academic circulation, really, with um, the Schomburg series uh, Mm -hmm. that Henry Louis Gates publishes out of the Schomburg
0: Right. collection yeah right um and and it was not just um, her reputation that made it to England but she herself is, is, is oh, yes. right. yeah oh yes. traveled oh, yes. yeah yes. Mm-hmm.
1: yes 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 um, on the occasion of the publication of her book or as the, in the preparation for the publication of her book she in fact traveled to London and there's again ample I think evidence to suggest that she negotiated her manumission while in London because the Somerset case, had just been just happened the year before, in which uh, Lord Mansfield of the King's Court had had said that um, an enslaved person could not be returned to the colonies if that person made their way to London. So um, James mm-hmm. Sumner said couldn't be mm-hmm. re- returned, for example, to um, what was then known as the West Indies. And she she could have stayed in London, but we think she probably negotiated uh-huh. Um to be manumitted as soon as she returned to Boston. And in fact, after the publication of her book, there was a huge public pressure to do right.
0: so. Right. So um, and and then and then maybe last thing before we turn to the poem, but that's all really fascinating um context. Um and, and I do I'm just endlessly curious about this biography, of course, um, is um th- that most sort of notoriously Um, She comes up, doesn't she, in the writings of Thomas Jefferson, um, who has a very kind of dismissive thing to say about her. So it's interesting,
1: actually, Comrade, and this we could talk about for a long Mm -hmm. time, too. Um, So in 1787, in Notes on the State of Virginia, um, Jefferson infamously says religion could. Well, first, he says, I have I uh, among blacks, there is, you know, religion enough, but no poetry. Religion produced a Phyllis Wheatley, but it could not produce a poet. Um, I've never seen a black do more than simply narrate. So it's a, it's, it's a, it's, it's, uh, it's an infamously racist proclamation, but what's often not discussed is that there was a response, immediate response to Jefferson Uh. and, uh, among, um, others, uh, Gilbert Imlay, um, uh, responded, and there was a kind of romantic circle response. That is, that his, he included recollection and on imagination, that is, um, Wheatley's poems um, in his response. And there's evidence that that response then um, got her work in front of the people who came to be called the British Romantics. Ah. So there's an mm-hmm. argument to be made that she influenced British Romanticism.
0: Wow. Okay. <laughs> um, all right. Yeah. So I said uh, that was going to be my last question about biography and Now <laughs> I want to ask other ones, but, um, but no, good. We should, um, we should talk about the poem and I'm sure, uh, well, because the poem in part, at least, um, has things to say in a, in a way about her life. Um, maybe we'll have occasion to keep talking about her life. Um, I, I think I, um, flagged for for listeners that the title I gave of of the poem is is perhaps not its full title um, and so I wonder Jenny if I can ask you um to read the poem out loud for us um, so that people have it fresh in mind um, I should also say that I'll pr- you know provide a link um in the episode notes so that people can be looking at the text um as they listen and as Jenny and I talk about the poem um, but I, I wonder if I can ask you to um, tell us the the full title of the poem, and then I don't know if you want to wait till after you've done reading or if you want to um, foreground this in a way, who is the Earl of Dartmouth, why does the poem have this title, that kind of thing. Um, so I'm going to turn it over to you, Jenny, and ask, and ask for you to um, read for us
1: okay I'd be delighted to um I I do want to tell listeners it's a it's a longish poem um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that's uh, okay
0: we've had longer <laughs> okay cool <laughs> yeah.
1: um, I also want to say that um, I, I'll say more about um, William Earl of Dartmouth after when we're after I read the poem when we're talking about the occasion good um, pretty much all of uh, Wheatley, Phyllis Wheatley's poetry uh, is occasional each poem is has an occasion, and I think of each poem, in fact, as quite strategic. Mm. So, um, so there's a there's a very specific occasion for this poem, but I'll talk about it after, Good. if that's okay. That's perfect. So, yeah. so, so the title, uh, the full title, <laughs> you gave most of the title. the title The full title is "To the Right Honorable William Earl of Dartmouth, His Majesty's Principal Secretary of State for North America, etc." And um, the date of the poem. The poem was written in. Um, 1772. Uh, it was uh, it was published uh, then, but also primarily in her book in 1773.
0: So just um, before the revolution London, and all that. Just
1: yeah. just right. before that right. is her book is really yeah. Who knows what have, would have happened to her book? Um, because again, the revolution kind of eclipsed it a little bit right. um, for a while. Okay, okay. This is the poem. Hail, happy day, when smiling like the morn, fair freedom rose New England to adorn. The northern clime beneath her genial ray, Dartmouth congratulates thy blissful sway. Elate with hope, her race no longer mourns. Each soul expands, each grateful bosom burns. While in thine hand, with pleasure we behold, the silken reins and freedom's charms unfold. Long lost to realms beneath, the northern skies, she shines supreme while hated faction dies. Soon as appeared the goddess long desired, sick at the view, she languished and expired. Thus from the splendors of the morning light, the owl in sadness seeks the caves of night. No more, America, in mournful strain, of wrongs and grievance unredressed complain. No longer shalt thou dread the iron chain, which wanton tyranny with lawless hand had made and with it meant to enslave the land. Should you, my lord, while you peruse my song, wonder from whence my love of freedom sprung? Whence flow these wishes for the common good by feeling hearts alone best understood? I, young in life, by seeming cruel fate, was snatched from Africa's fancied happy seat. Which pangs excruciating must molest, what sorrows labor in my parents' breast. Steel'd was that soul, and by no misery moved, that from a father seized his babe beloved. Such, such my case. And can I then but pray, others may never feel tyrannic sway. For favors past, great sir, our thanks are due, and thee we ask thy favours to renew. Since in thy power, as in thy will before, to soothe the griefs which thou didst once p- deplore, may heavenly grace the sacred sanction give to all thy works and thou forever live, not only on the wings of fleeting fame, though praise immortal crowns the patriot's name, but to conduct to heaven's refulgent fane, may fiery coursers sweep the ethereal plain, and bear thee upwards to that blessed abode, where, like the prophet, thou shalt find thy God.
0: Mm. Thanks very much. So that was Virginia Jackson reading um, Phyllis Wheatley's poem um, to the Right Honorable William Earl of Dartmouth. Thanks, Jenny. Um, Maybe before we dive into like to the beginning of the poem you um we can say um a word about its occasion um i, I like that you gave us that word as a place to begin um and then maybe also would be useful just to think about the poem sort of formally for a minute before mm-hmm. you know as a whole
2: i mm-hmm. mean it's like
0: it's in rhyming couplets for instance Whereas why is wheatley writing like that you know where's mm-hmm. that coming from but mm-hmm. yeah first maybe a word about the occasion who was the earl of dartmouth and and why write a poem like this at all
1: so um William Legge, Earl of Dartmouth, uh, was appointed in 1772, in September 1772, as, um, here's his full title, um, Head of Board of Trade and Secretary of State for the Colonies in the Americas. And uh, so this is 1772, right? Right. And Cameron, as you said, so the buildup to the revolution, but it's obviously post stamp act. Right. And it's, 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 it's a Boston is just boiling over.
2: Right. Um,
1: so, he, uh, Legge was, was, uh, basically he's being appointed, right. As the secretary of state for the colonies, right. the, 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 right. the, the British presiding figure for the colonies. And a lot of people have said, well, why is, writing to the colonial minister, is she pro, you know, mm-hmm. is she is she a monarchist, right? Is she pro-British? Is she is she against the revolution, right? That's not all, not
0: of, only is she writing to him, but it, the tone, at least to a naive first reading, sounds like she's pleased with his appointment and it's absolutely you know, on good terms, you know, right?
1: Absolutely, okay. and in fact, um, in fact, I think she is. Um, as usual, mirroring a discourse that is very happy at first. That that a lot of people are very happy that uh, William Legge Dartmouth has been appointed because mm-hmm. Hillsborough was uh, was definitely a foe to the resistance in Boston, and Legge had voted for the repeal of the Stamp Act. Okay. Um, so there was reason politically to believe that um, that Legge was on their side. And so you can this is this is also obviously a gesture welcoming the new, right right Secretary of State and saying, of course you're on your side on our side, right? you know, that is, you know, but b- sort of performatively stating what they hope to be the case. So and, she's
0: and what yeah. what the what our refers to is in in that's the our the, side. I mean that's right.
1: that's the whole thing, right? Good. Like say so more about that um so so uh so let me just say one more thing yeah, about yeah. the occasion of writing. Mm-hmm. So before before um Legge shows up in Boston he sent an ambassador, a guy named Woolridge. And Woolridge has made this very racist pronouncement about Wheatley um, because she's famous by then. This is also Mm -hmm. important to know, right? She's already famous Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, especially in these circles and with the countess of Huntington. And so, and so Woolridge has said, she couldn't possibly have written the poems that we've read. This is some kind of, you know, and a lot of people are expressing this kind of skepticism. She can't write such fine English verse. And so Woolridge actually goes to the Wheatley's home visits the Wheatleys while he's in Boston scouting out for for uh William Legge and and uh says I want you to write a poem right now to prove that uh-huh. you can write this poetry and she writes this. huh And he sends it I to see. Dartmouth. So wow. um so there's an occasion within the occasion.
0: Right. Yeah. right, and so it it's as though um and i and I'm sure there's a broader context in which this is true as well the fa- the fact that this woman has written these poems would be cited as evidence in abolitionist causes in um discourse about slavery more generally um and uh okay, and so you know, in a way, when I was asking what um what hour that that um um a pronoun might have met to um to wheatley um i i or, and and what sort of if this new minister was going to be sympathetic to the cause what the what the cause in question was is that um a, you know sort of more freedom for the um colonists um or is it a specifically sort of um anti slavery or it's taking out a position on abolition or on slavery um
1: well, this is All part of, of the that brilliance.
0: is an issue, I guess. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. Right. right. This is part of the brilliance of the poem. So to take the occasion in which she's basically, right, by this racist being asked to prove that she could have written in order to address Dartmouth and saying and and aligning herself with calling herself an American and an African at the same time. So alig- aligning Africans and Americans
2: mm-hmm.
1: at this moment. Mm-hmm. And taking the discourse of tyranny that characterizes the resistance right, right. to British colonial right. rule, and applying it to enslavement and crossing the axes of enslavement and colonization, that's what this poem is doing. Yeah, yeah, that's it's astonishing, really. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So yes, she made yes, we are Americans, right? But of course, she is an enslaved person, right? Who right. And characterizing herself as American is also claiming that her position is aligned with the position of colonized people who say they don't have freedom. And Mm -hmm. she says, well, you don't think you have freedom. Look at me.
0: Right. Right. So um, that's fascinating. Um, And, um, and so now I'm, I mean, I, I don't think this is, um, well, I think these, these, questions are related in a way I'd, I'd asked I'd said a minute ago I was curious about what how, how you might help us contextualize the poem's form um Wheatley is writing in couplets in heroic couplets right she's writing in couplets of iambic pentameter is that um how characteristic is that of her poetry more broadly and um and of poetry being written in the colonies at around that time um I'm trying to, um, place her, you know, of course it's interesting. She's writing English poetry in two senses of the word, you know, right. She's writing in the English language. She's writing Anglophone poetry, but she's writing technically speaking, I suppose, as an English subject. Right. Um, so, so, um, talk to us about form, um, in this poem.
1: So not all of Wheatley's poems are in couplets, but, um, a great majority are and uh she is just you know, her couplets are virtuosic in several senses. So you're quite right that she's writing in eighteenth centuries, writing in eighteenth century poetic form, right? She's writing in eighteenth century poetic genres, but she's she's been quite criticized by especially Ah, the Black Arts Movement by using the master's tools not to dismantle the master's house, right? Like, how could she be writing in Pope's couplets? Um, there seems than... to be
0: something sort of conservative about that, right? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. absolutely, and and so, um, but what she does with couplet technology. Um, and James Ford, who's writing a book called Black Swan, which promises to be amazing, is really great on this, and she's doubling down not only on couplet technology, but on neoclassicism more generally. Mm -hmm. So that she's, um, we don't know what her native language was, of course. Um, She's from, um, various scholars have pointed out that she's from an Islamic, or she could have been from an Islamic region of Mm. Western Africa. She may have been literate. In Af- in Arabic, she may not have been, but um, but by the time by a couple of years by after she uh, lands in Boston, she's um she's speaking and writing in English. She read in Latin, um, she read some Greek and some
2: wow. Hebrew.
1: Mm-hmm. Um she's a classicist, she's a neoclassicist and also a classical scholar. Who's teaching uh, her? So um the twins in the weekly household. Uh, realize how, how prodigious she is and, and they clearly take pleasure in teaching her, but mm-hmm. she herself is also obviously self-teaching. Right. Um, so she has a library at her disposal, but she is also clearly... And, and there is more and more evidence that there's a, um, a, you know, a Black intellectual community in Boston, she has um, letters with Ober Tanner, who may or may not have been on the Phyllis with her, but her friend, Scipio Moorhead, the painter, mm. um, who is an enslaved man, whose paintings are lost to us, except perhaps for the portrait that prefaces Wheatley's volumes of
0: poems. Right. So, yeah. Okay. so And so she would have um, she would have read someone like Pope. You know, I'm trying to think. Oh of these well, things. Pope's especially right. Pope. Yeah. yeah, Pope
1: is um, certainly Pope, um, but certainly so much yeah, else. Yeah. Oh, and not just but, and right, she's yeah. and Pope's and also Pope's translation of the Iliad, mm-hmm. right? She's clearly quotes directly from his translation of the Iliad, and she's a total Milton head,
0: right? Also, yeah, and that's
1: important, and, you know, so well, Milton is everywhere.
0: In the I, I see Milton here in the happy seat. Yes. Um, okay. Yes. we can, We'll, we'll yes. talk about that in a minute. Okay. So let's yes. let's talk about the opening lines of the poem. So, the, the, here's one question I have for you, which I hope you'll take in any direction you find, um, you know, stimulating, Jenny. So, you know, the the opening words of the poem, "Hail, happy day," you know, the, the, it seems like what's being described as a time, but that time is hard for me to place. At first glance on any kind of timeline, I mean, is she is she describing the moment of her writing? Is she describing a future that that is coming? Is she describing a kind of fantasy that doesn't exist on any kind of historical timeline? So I'm just curious about f- how you take like verb tense to work in the opening lines of this poem and what maybe that's signaling for you about um, about the form of address that this poem, is taking. I know, um, I know you are someone for whom the question of address and how poems address particular readers is a really important one to historicize and think carefully about. So, um, take that in any direction you like.
1: I think it's a really important question about Oliver poetry, but because Oliver poetry is basically occasional, the occasion for this poem, I think dictates the form of address. So, Mm. I think you're right, right to point out that the hail happy day when smiling like the morning fair freedom rose New England to adorn seems quite conventional and not linked to any particular occasion. Mm. On the other hand, if we think of the occasion of this poem as writing while right Woolridge is basically waiting for her to write the poem, the occasion is the appointment of Dartmouth and her. Her, the address turns out to be an address, right, to Dartmouth. Mm -hmm. And so, and so, so the, you know, the happy day on which Dartmouth is appointed Mm -hmm. Secretary of State is, I think, strategically, right, addressed to Dartmouth as a way to say, of course, you are, you know, you are equated here with freedom. Mm -hmm. rose New England to, which seems totally counterintuitive to us because he's being appointed again as a colonial minister. He's not right. He's not there to actually give New England freedom from England.
0: Or, or to free the enslaved people of, of the colonies. I mean, does the, does Wheatley have reason to suspect that, that Dartmouth has um, sympathies with the abolitionist cause or with enslaved Absolutely people?
1: not. No. I mean, he's associated with Selena, Countess of Huntington. And in that sense, he's, he, he uh, may be uh, associated with certain sentiments, dissenting sentiments, mm-hmm. but there's no evidence that he's
2: mm-hmm.
1: abolitionist in any way. And, and in this sense, again, the strategy of this poem, uh, David Wallstreicher in his new book on uh, biography, his new great biography of Wheatley, points out how careful this poem is not to argue on the basis of race. Mm. Um, I don't know that I agree with that, but... but I think it's an interesting point that the argument here is about political position. So my political position as an enslaved person, your political position as a colonized person Mm. um, are being equated and they're being equated exactly in that couplet form that you pointed Mm -hmm. out, that is the the binary opposition of the couplet, the way in which the couplet puts things against one another, because that's the structure Um, leaves a chiasmus in the middle, right? These things Mm. cross one another in the couplet. And then there's this this kind of empty space in the middle. And over and over, Wheatley is working that space in order to align Mm. uh, tyranny and enslavement, that is political Mm. tyranny and enslavement, as part of the argument of the poem. And in that sense, this address to Dartmouth is, again, it's strategic, yeah. Um, I don't. I mean, certainly the consequence would be, as you are saying, an abolitionist consequence. But I, I think what's out front
2: mm-hmm.
1: is the political alignment that is. And she does this over and over. She does this in this other fabulous poem to the to the students at Harvard,
2: mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm.
1: telling them about their privileges. And she says, uh-huh. "And Ethiop tells you, uh-huh. right, to enjoy your privileges." But right. she's basically claiming a greater authority um, as an enslaved person, uh, a greater, inthor- a greater authority, uh, t- to have some sense of the epistemology of freedom mm. than, than mm. the people who are demanding freedom from British tyranny. Um, because it's one thing
0: to want a kind of political freedom and it's another thing to want freedom in your daily life, freedom in your movement, <laughs> freedom over your own body.
1: Well, you know, I mean, that's not the way she puts it, right? She's, I mean, this is where that, the reason this poem is especially famous is that people like to say, well, this is the place where she actually talks about her own experience. Yeah. Um, That she talks about her experience um, because we have no, we have no evidence, you know, we have Mm. no evidence of the place where she was born or the place where she was kidnapped. and She doesn't write a narrative uh, of her she life. She doesn't I write anything right. like yeah. a narrative. Yeah. No. And right. so, um, so here she says, uh, this is line 24 or so, mm-hmm. I young in life by seeming cruel fate was snatched from Africa's fancied happy seed. So, um, you know, it's a good question about whether this is this is personal experience talking, right? Or this is, again, a kind of generic description. I'm an enslaved person. You know this is what happened to me. Right. And what happened to me gives me a greater understanding of what it is not to be free, as you say, right. uh, than the people who, of course, enslaving me, mm. who may also want mm-hmm. freedom
2: mm-hmm.
1: from tyranny. Yeah. but. Um, so it's a it's a kind of one upping I suppose right. you could think about it right yeah. and on the on the spectrum of freedom
0: sure yeah and 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 maybe we can come back to those lines in a minute because they're so interesting the way that Mm. i emerges and i really want to know how you understand you know (laughs) i want you to talk more about what that i is is for you um what it's doing there but um even before we get there i want to stay with the couplets uh, as as a kind of um formal feature of the poem a moment longer since you were the one to raise her um uh fondness for attachment to Milton earlier. You know, Milton is the one who in the note on the verse in Paradise Lost, um, you know, disavows the, um, the couplet as a kind of modern bondage, right? Um, so it, you know, Wheatley would have been aware of that analogy and yet, and I suppose this sort of returns us to the question you'd raised earlier about, um, Skepticism or impatience that some black poets have had with Wheatley over the years, or the Black Arts Movement had with her as being kind of too beholden to, you know, traditional form, verse form. Um, But but I I take like so I I'm looking at the at a couplet early in the in the poem while in thine hand with pleasure we behold the silken reins and freedom's charms unfold. I mean it's such a fascinating rhyme um so I I just want to invite you maybe to say more about um I was so interested in the way you described the chiasmus of couplets and I wonder if you could make that vivid by choosing an example here or there to um, help us understand what you mean
1: yeah I think that's just that's a great couplet to choose but just to say that just to go back to your great point about Milton and uh bondage in another in another poem um he talks about the silken fetters of verse yeah um so um uh, the silken reins the silken feather yeah. fetters, right that's that's conventional right mm-hmm. for milton it's also conventional right to think about verse as a kind of fettering a kind of bondage right but um but 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 here in that couplet um uh because because of what you said before about the address right yeah. so dartmouth right is the one yeah. being addressed dartmouth congratulates thy blissful sway and and dartmouth Is a governor, right? He's a secretary, he's a colonizer. Uh, So um, to say that he's bringing freedom rather than tyranny, and then to say each soul expands, each grateful bosom burns, right? I'm sure that's Mm -hmm. basically not true, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, While in thine hand, that is in Dartmouth's hand, Right. right? With pleasure we behold the silken reins and freedom's charms unfold. So the chiasmus there, right, would be between thine hand and freedom's charms unfolding. And then between then the pleasure we behold and, the silken rains, right? right? And so, for, um, so
0: for people who don't know, chiasmus is like a, rhetor- okay. a rhetorical figure, right? Tell me, Jenny, tell me if this this definition is going to satisfy um, what you want it to do, a rhetorical figure where the form is something like, um, and don't confuse this with a rhyme scheme, but the form is something like A B B A. So the, there's like a mirroring that happens where the um, there's a kind of parallel structure, but the order is reversed so that. You know when Kennedy says, "Ask not what um, uh, your country can do for you; ask what you can do for your country." You hear like "country, you, you, country," um, and it's it's a form that can be put to great purpose. And Milton does it all the time in Paradise Lost, for instance. Yeah, yeah
1: that's super. That is a super helpful way to to gloss it. Um, uh, I in the in the book when I'm talking about Wheatley. I quote the scholar uh, J. Paul Hunter, who mm-hmm. I think has a really great way of describing Pope's couplets. And again, these are the couplets yeah. that often are used kind of against Wheatley—that is, she shouldn't be writing in Pope's couplets. And, right. But the way that the way that J. Paul Hunter um, describes Pope's couplets is exactly because of what you just said, Kamran. Um, Hunter says that. Uh, that the route by which the couplet blurs and reconfigures binaries and develops a rhetoric of complex redefinition is circuitous. Mm. It challenges the transparency of the apparent rhetoric and blurs and bleeds images of plain opposites into one another.
0: So it's not just that, like, um, right, a naive view of a couplet might be to say, oh, it's such a simple form. It just says it's like, this is like this. This is like this. But really what's happening because um, it's because we have both syntax and line break is that um, if you know what's producing the rhyme is happening at the end of the line but grammatically if there's an inversion then then often the relationship between the two rhyming lines can be ironic in some way or develop some kind of more subtle relation yeah
1: yes, that's a great way yeah. to put it and. And the effect of that, what I say in the book is that, you know, that, that in taking Pope's, I think it really is specifically Pope's couplet technology, um, it's not just that Wheatley's rewiring it, it's that she's replacing its software. Hmm. She's taking that blurring and making it the, the point. Right. Uh, okay. So that in that sense, freedom, captivity, right, pleasure, pain um it crossing them rather than producing a sense in which right these things change places in fact the definitions of both are kind of thrown into question so finally uh you know enslavement not enslavement right will be the binary that gets right.
0: blurred right right oh that's great okay um i i wanted to to bring us to um some lines actually that almost immediately precede the ones that you had cited a moment ago, Jenny, the ones in which she seems perhaps to begin to tell her story. Um, Let me read these lines again, just so they're fresh and then we can talk about them. No more America in mournful strain of wrongs and grievance, unredressed complain, no longer shalt thou dread the iron chain, which wanton tyranny with lawless hand had made. And with it meant to enslave the land. Um, so there we have iron chain, right? Um, and a different kind of um, binding, I suppose, from the silken reins um, earlier in the poem. Um, talk to us about that iron chain and those lines.
1: So so here the form of address, as you would say, Cameron, right, has shifted. So from yeah. Dartmouth back to America. Mm, so that's part of also what's happening here is that, um, that that the here's this British figure that's going to come and be the American figure, and yet the crossing goes on and on, in which the difference between Dartmouth and America is invoked. That is, Dartmouth is not yet America, so to be to for her to address America, which of right. course doesn't really exist, right? Right? It exists as a colony, mm-hmm. but it certainly ex- exists in the discourse. Of the people who have been protesting colonization, uh-huh. right? It certainly exists in the discourse of the people, for example, protesting the Stamp Act since 1765, right? Now it's 1772. So, um, so, so, in addressing America, though, those complaints are familiar, right? She doesn't, mm. just as she doesn't really have to introduce herself because she's famous by this point, and she doesn't have to introduce. Dartmouth because he's famous right um, uh, she doesn't have to introduce what the mournful strains are because everybody knows and yeah. uh, so of wrongs and grievance unredressed complain right those can just be generic because everybody knows that this is on the other hand if you were a call if you were a person who thought that there weren't wrongs and weren't grievances you wouldn't be able to say this
0: uh-huh. Right. So,
1: so, so, so she's, so she's, she's, she's addressing all of America as if all of America is anti-colonial. Yeah. And at the same time, addressing uh, the anti-colonial discourse in the discourse of enslavement.
0: Yeah. When, when, what, here's what I'm thinking as you, as you say that. When, when, um, when you set up this poem or when you set up its occasion, you said, you know, in a way it has an occasion within an occasion, right? That, that is, the, you know, the occasion is his appointment, but then the, the sort of occasion within that, I suppose, is um, the test of her um, authenticity as the, the poet who's attached to the um, publications, um so it's sort of like a proof of life demonstration or something right um she um i i what it's impossible i i i'm sure to know what she was thinking as she was asked to perform this task but given the fact that you've um you know told us that she's already famous by now. She's having um, no trouble getting her poems published and so on. And she knows that there's great interest in her work and she's writing to Dartmouth. She knows that he's not the only reader of this poem. Right. Um, and, and maybe that helps to sort of explain or, or just to, um, put some historical, um, specificity or concreteness on the kind of rhetorical situation that you're describing here right
1: she's,
0: Yeah 100 yeah Yeah go
1: ahead yeah go No 100% Cameron I think that um also it's uh it's it's September 1772 when she's writing this poem and June 1772 the is the occasion of the Somerset decision so the fact that yeah, the Somerset that 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 the people reading this in London, right? The discourse of the Somerset decision is very fresh. At, at the same time, the in Dartmouth coming to Boston, the discourse of that resistance is very fresh. And so she's yeah she she's talking public. This is public speech. I think right. you're right. 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 It's not it's not a it's not a private address. Mm-hmm. Um of course it's not, right? Because she's addressing a public figure, but I think you're right that she has every reason to think that it will itself be a public document.
0: So in yeah, insofar as it's a public document, and insofar as it's public speech, um, so maybe two ways of thinking about public discourse, one as a textual document, the other as a um oral um enunciation or utter utterance. Um how does that um um inform jenny the way you take the work that the i is doing when it does come up um there you know so you know if i write you a letter and i use you know or an email or a text message or whatever and i'm and i use the first person pronoun maybe that means one thing um and of course if i'm as a writer doing something for publication that i might mean something else again um, based on the context, um, I know that you and I could probably talk for a long time about what sort of the quote-unquote lyric subject is or has been taken to signify. But when that "I" appears in in Wheatley's poem here, what um, how does how does the context of its occasion or the mode of address? Um, that you see it as engaged in help you understand what the I sort of signifies here?
1: Mm. Yeah, I think that um, the way I would think about that is that even before the I enters, the Mm -hmm. relation between the person and the poem is at stake here. Not only is the relation between the person and the poem at stake because of the occasion within the occasion, right, in which she's asked to write this, but because it is always already going to be a poem by Phyllis Wheatley, and mm. her person upstaged her poems over and over. So, huh. the 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 neoclassical form that we've been talking about, but also the neoclassical phenomenology of reading—that is, the reading right. a minor, a lesser ode to a public figure, for
0: example—would
1: uh-huh. um, would. would uh, in a way, be you know, put under pressure by the fact that this is the person who wrote this is this very famous enslaved teenager in right. Boston. So there's a lot of pressure on the eye even before the eye enters. Yeah, and, and that couple and that that couplet you pointed to, or that whole stanza that precedes the supposedly mm-hmm. autobiographical stanza, right. the famous autobiographical stanza, um, uh, that you know, that couple of technology we were talking about, which wanton tyranny with lawless hand had made and with it to enslave the land. That's a gorgeous version of, you know, the wanton tyranny, right? So yeah. something, tyranny is there personified enough to be wanton mm-hmm. and um, what it's doing, right, is enslaving. So, you know, Pat, the, this, this this scary personification in other words.
0: And and, and when she yeah. talks about wanton tyranny enslaving the land, is she talking about um the the British Empire's dominion <laughs> over the American colonies? Uh, but but she's also, for readers who want to hear it, talking about um American colonists enslaving African people?
1: Well of course, that's where she goes. Yeah. But what's interesting is that it's not addressed to those who view who want to hear it, right? She's not, I don't think she's as explicitly code switching as a later poet might be. What she's doing is she's she's using the discourse of the very people she's addressing that is both the British uh, colonists, right? Both Dartmouth himself, right? William Liggett himself, but also these Americans who were, are resisting what Dartmouth represents, but especially his predecessor, mm-hmm. Hillsborough, who mm-hmm. was really a problem. So right. part of the politics of the poem is hoping that, that William Lego will be better. Right. But, but I, I think that when the eye comes in, the question you're posing, which is really for me, the question of the poem is, is this, this person, right? This misnamed person, Phyllis Wheatley talking about her experience before the Middle Passage, right, or her history, um, that is, she's snatched from Africa's happy seat, or is she, is, is that line, such, such my case, the important line in this argument, that is, she's using her case as one case among millions by this point, uh, as a case in the, um, in, in the revocation of freedom. That is, as a case that would define what freedom or what, you know, Renato Alcott or, or you know, what the long emancipation right. might look like.
0: So th- these lines are so important. And I just want to, you know, the, the podcast form is such that, you know, though I've asked people to, you know, invited people to look at the poem, they might not be able to do so. Let me, let's just, let me read the lines again. Um, the, and, and, then, and then I want to see if I'm understanding something you just said correctly. So I'm going to sort of try to rephrase it to you, and I want you to tell me if I've got it right. But So here are the lines. Should you, my lord, while you peruse my song, wonder from whence my love of freedom sprung, whence flow these wishes for the common good, by feeling hearts alone, best understood, I, young in life, by seeming cruel fate, was snatched from Afric's fancied happy seat. What pangs excruciating must molest? What sorrows labor in my parents' breast? Steeled was that soul, and by no misery moved, that from a father seized his babe beloved. Such, such my case. And can I then but pray others may never feel tyrannic sway? So in one way of reading it, that, narrative that begins let's i mean that's prefaced by the first lines i read but that really begins in earnest with that i young in life by seeming cruel fate was snatched from afric's fancied happy seat and then this you know just kind of totally heartrending scene of being snatched from um um the the father the the sorrow imagining invite the invitation to imagine the sorrow and the parent who loses the child um in one way of reading it that's you know, we said that Phyllis Wheatley didn't write a narrative of her life, but maybe that is a kind of, maybe as she's writing those lines, what she's doing is narrating a memory that she has or doing her best to do so. Or maybe what she's doing is recounting a, a narrative that by then would have been generic and conventionally understood other narratives had been written and one could imagine these scenes and and so that then the, the intrusion of like what we might want to call the personal in the second way of reading really is quite brief and really only comes in this sort of moment to say like such such was my case i am an, i am an instance of the generic story i've just told you um, is, that, is that sort of the, the kind of two ways of reading you're inviting us to entertain here?
1: Yeah, but I think that, again, to go back to that binary couplet technology, yeah. what she's doing is a collapsing them on each other. So that I doesn't see. mean that it's not personal, right? It right. means that the personal is the generic.
2: Uh-huh. That
1: is that it means that to be a case or as Gleeson would say, you know, consent not to be a single being. This mm-hmm. happened to so many of us. Mm-hmm. This is this is something that, right? You know, as generic, right? Because you know that this is what happened to us, and uh, this happened to me, which which makes right. it personal. But it also gives me this extraordinary personal authority to tell you about tyranny.
0: Yeah. I find and
1: she's th- telling the tyrant. Yeah. I mean, that's the amazing thing, right? Yeah,
0: I find that that moment, that such such moment, to be like the kind of secret heart of the poem in a way, right? It's that that kind of stuttering um, um, sort of moment where the 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 sort of smooth uh, flow of these couplets slows down. Um, mm-hmm, and gets mm-hmm. interrupted um, with, mm-hmm. a, with a little bit of emotive kind of utterance. I don't know. Um, okay, that's that's mm-hmm. great. Um, so I, you know, we're, we're getting um, near what what should probably be an end for for this conversation, though, I hope we'll have other ones um, about this and, and other things, Jenny. Um, and, and I want to invite you to talk about, well, for one thing, the way the poem ends, but then also, you know, you've alluded a couple of times to what you take as um, what you understand as the sort of strategic ambitions that that Wheatley had in writing this poem, and in writing not just this poem, but in writing many other poems. That that um, mm-hmm. poetry for her was um, something she was doing in response to a kind of political occasion, but also some sh- something she was doing with a kind of um, purpose, a kind of strategic, a purpose that you understand as strategic, and so I, I'd be curious to know how those things um, come to a head, or if they do, for you in the poem's, you know, f- um, final movements.
1: Um, I think that um, in this poem, I think you're right, Cameron, to say that that penultimate stanza really is the stanza where there's most pressure. Mm on okay. all of these terms. Mm-hmm. they So if you think, of, you go back to the chiasmus, right, the relation between tyranny and enslavement are, and, or between enslavement and freedom and tyranny and freedom are intersecting through the I, right? The person right. is in the center
2: right.
1: of that chiasmus. Right. There's a tremendous amount of pressure there.
2: Yeah.
1: And that the, that last stanza really zooms out again.
0: I see. Yeah. And
1: it zooms out. So um, Dartmouth uh, was also uh known as an evangelical yeah um, uh, person and um so it's zooming back out into the familiar language of what Michael Warner's recently called the evangelical public sphere yeah um it's hailing an evangelical reading public
2: yeah.
1: uh, not only you know not only will dartmouth give us freedom but You know, he himself, right, is going to be taken up and redeemed
0: as a kind of reward uh, for his as a kind of
1: reward. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, but also as a but also as a reward for for in some ways believing this poem, right? right? As if, right? So that's the as if scenario, right? As if this this poem actually succeeded uh, in aligning these terms.
0: So yeah, okay, so. I have two questions. One is like a very local one about the, the last two lines of the poem, but then I want to um zoom out from that into a a broader question mm-hmm, in a way that mm-hmm. might allow you know, invite you to say anything you'd like to say. So, um about the last two lines. So she's imagining this kind of um you know, re- reward up on high for for Dartmouth for for um for you know, the 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 virtue that she is crediting to him um, throughout mm-hmm. the poem. She says, "Bear thee upwards to that blessed abode where, like the prophet, thou shalt find thy God." Um, him finding his God, you know, it struck me as a reader that that's both a kind of um, perhaps like a, a conventional and familiar way of saying, like you know, you're go- you're going to go to heaven and you'll have your re- you know your heavenly reward but it might also be a kind of, am I wrong in reading it as a, as a kind of um, slightly more pointed injunction to him to like find his religion here and now, (laughs) you know what I mean? To, to sort of, um, you know, in other words, to, to have the, to, to sort of live by his stated creed in, in an earthly way.
1: Yeah. I love that reading. Um, I don't, I I would love to think so. Mm. Um, I don't exactly think so, and here's why. Um, <laughs> okay. She she loves the she loves the couplet and the whole period loves the couplet abode God loves yeah. those rhymes. Um, yeah, and um, but she uses them against each other all the time. So um, in her first printed poem on Messieurs Hussey and Coffin in 1767, she uses that rhyme too, and throughout her poetry, and I guess you know, what is interesting about this reading, right, is that if you read it in relation to all this other poems that are strategic in their various ways, right, because this is a particular political occasion, and there are lots of other occasions, you'd find that white people go to heaven all the time. Mm. And there's something going on there. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I can't, you know, the obvious thing, right, mm. is that white people think they go to heaven all the time. So mm-hmm. there's an elegy for, as she wrote, many, many elegies, and this particular elegy for um, an infant CE, an Elliot, one of the Elliots, one of the Boston Elliots, right. um, who dies when he's a year old. And right. he ends up, that's a universe poem, he ends up sitting on top of the world and telling everybody yeah. um, what to do from heaven, uh-huh. this little white baby. So White people are always going to heaven, and there's something she's telling about them what they want the to hear. The yeah, structure, right? Yeah. There's a structure of redemption in Wheatley's poetry that I think does actually raise uh, the possibility of a kind of irony. But I think that that irony is slightly the wrong term for mm-hmm. it. In her poetics, and the, what I think is useful about reading this poem in this way, in relation to the other poems, and yeah. relation, for example, the one poem everybody reads of Wheatley's, which is "On Being Brought," right. and then the question about that poem is always: when people only read that poem, is she being ironic? Is she really thinking right? Uh, because the, for the, the few <laughs>
0: people who haven't read it, the the, the, the sort of a, par- a a kind of paraphrase of the poem might be that she's sort of. Testifying to her gratitude for being saved right. by religion, right? So, right? Yeah. so
1: that 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 um, well, no, by 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 enslavement, right? So yes. her that poem begins, "Twas mercy brought me from my pagan land," and um, tony Morrison writes an entire novel, right, about that word and right. how disturbing it is. But I think if you read this poem to Dartmouth, right, yeah. and, and and really any of the other poems, you realize, oh no, yeah. right, that's not what you first
0: think it is at all. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, so yeah, well, in a way you've, you have you know, I said I, uh, a few minutes ago that I had two questions, one very local and one more general. <laughs> and, and in a way you've answered both of them because the more general one had something Was something like, well, to say that she's being strategic presupposes, I guess, that she has a kind of intention or like a that that she could state even if only for herself. And here, I wonder, is it what to like shock the conscience of uh, white readers of of this poem of 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 British um, colonials um, of? of her family? Is it to secure her freedom personally? Is it, is it to, um, advance the cause of abolition more broadly? Um, or is it something, am I being too literal minded in wanting to pin it down to a kind of particular outcome?
1: Well, I don't think you're too literal minded. A lot of people Mm -hmm. have wanted to think that way or wanted her to think that way, but, Mm -hmm. um,
0: so, how do you no. understand what the goal I, is of strategy if she's being strategic? I
1: yeah. mean, here it's strategic, mm-hmm. right, in this particular political situation. It's also strategic to get her volume of poems published, which she does.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But, but beyond that, mm-hmm. when when we were talking about Milton before sure. and the adventurous song and what she she calls herself in another poem, adventurous Af- Afric, mm-hmm. in um, on recollection. Um, the ambition of this poetry is vast mm-hmm. and it's just finding its readers. Mm-hmm. Um, both two of the greatest readers I know of, of Wheatley, James Ford and Dana Murphy, both people who are writing books about Wheatley say, she's cho- choosing me now in the present. There have been readers and especially black readers of, for two and a half centuries who have responded to this poetry. There's a great, there's the Phyllis Wheatley book, uh, Poetry festival in the seventies of Black feminist poetry festival, yeah. in which people are reading Wheatley and and learning right what it might be to write a a, a Black feminist poetry. Mm-hmm. So I feel like the the ambition is is, is as great as Milton's. Uh-huh. Um, right, the ambition is not um, the ambition is the venturous song here. Right, is is quite. Quite adventurous, but that doesn't mean it doesn't have other strategic purposes in the period.
0: It certainly right. does. Yeah, well, that's um, that's a, a beautiful way to um, to bring those um, the, the sort of various stars of that constellation together. Um, I want to thank you for it, um, Jenny Jackson. Um, thank you so much for for the conversation and for, um, bringing this poem to, to, um, listeners, um, who maybe didn't know it already. Um, and, and, and in any case, who know it better now. Um, so, um, I, I it was really a pleasure to get to speak with you for the last hour or so. Thanks again. Thank
1: you, Carmen. It was such a pleasure.
0: Um, well, uh, you're very welcome and thank you listeners for making it with us this far. Um, we will have um, more episodes for you soon. Be well, everyone.